Hello, everyone. Today, we're very honored to have with us a man of men, a man of knowledge, a man of passion, integrity, honesty, and facts, facts, hard data, not BS. And we've been writing about him actually going way back to September 2020 in the Trends Journal, uh, Dr. Scott Jensen. And what we wrote on April 14th, later that year, we reported, quote, Dr. Scott Jensen, a Minnesota state senator, who is also a medical doctor, accused the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention of directing doctors to list COVID-19 as a cause of death, even for someone who was never tested for it, which he said is, quote, ridiculous and, quote, misleading. Dr. Jensen, thanks so much for being here. Thank you, Gerald. It's my pleasure. And you wrote that back, you said that back then when nobody else was saying this. I was. I was saying it then, and, and I think that there's been a lot of vindicating evidence. And perhaps I could point to just one sterling example, and that was Tony Fauci saying sometime a year ago or so that one of the problems is we had pediatric patients being admitted to the hospital whereby they did not have symptoms of COVID. They were being admitted potentially for an orthopedic injury or problem. And because they were being routinely tested, it might well end up that these patients were identified as COVID-19 patients when in fact COVID had nothing to do with their hospitalization. I think that the CDC and the Minnesota Department of Health stumbled mightily. And when I, my voice, when I, when I raised this issue, Gerald, I wasn't trying to be some crazy whistleblower. I just, as a sitting senator and a physician for 30, 35 years who taught at the medical school, I thought that perhaps they didn't realize what they were doing and that they had confused the situation. And I fully expected them to take every step possible to correct the situation. But that's not what happened. I got nothing from the Department of Health, despite the fact that I was a senator, despite the fact that I was a physician and, a, and an adjunct professor at the University of Minnesota Medical School. And in fact, two months later, for the first time in my career, my license was being investigated. And I was just stunned. I was simply stunned. You said that, um, you know, I, I, I'm asking you this question. Do you think that they realized what they were doing when you said they didn't respond to you? you I think, think that they know that they were faking it. I'm always uncomfortable trying to identify someone else's motivation. It's, it's a dangerous yeah, ground yeah. to walk on. You're right. I, I think that when I looked at it, I mean, I have read that document, that email that I received on a, the first Friday of April, probably 50 times. And I think that it slipped by someone. And I think once they slipped it by, I think that, and it really came from the CDC and then it came to the departments of health across the land. And I, I think that perhaps people 
didn't quite understand what they were saying. And I wish they would have called me so I could have walked them through it, but they didn't. And so it's, it's really quite clear. It says, if COVID is a contributing condition, you can go ahead and put it down as a cause of death. Yeah. But it goes on to say, but oh, by the way, if emphysema or something else like that is considered a contributing condition, continue to do what you've done in the past. Identify it in the part two, where you identify contributing conditions. So they were making a clear distinction between if the contributing condition is COVID, put it down as a cause of death. If wow. the contributing condition is something other than COVID, put it in part two. That's what I that's what I reacted to. And I don't know if people were simply in too much of a hurry that they said, well, you know, we, we put it out there. We're not going to change it or what happened. But I think it ended up being a little bit of that, that bellwether event that sort of broadcast to the world that this is what we were in for. We were in for all kinds of mechanisms and policies put in place that would potentially gin up the numbers. And that, in the end, probably did more to fracture the trust that the everyday person had in public health officials than anything else. And I think they doubled down as the pandemic went on. Uh, we had people saying, don't wear masks. Then we had them saying, wear masks. We had people saying, herd immunity will be achieved at 60%, then yeah. 70, then 80, then 85. Then they went on to denigrate the importance of the notion of natural immunity, something that's achieved after we've had the disease. And natural immunity has been around for more than 2,000 years of recorded human history. And literally, when you look back now, we, we just shake our heads and say, how in the world did the CDC and even the departments of health put <laughs> themselves in such a, an untenable position? Going back again, this is our Trends Journal, the magazine. The headline on September 20th, 2020, was called COVID Truth and Consequences. We go on to say, Dr. Jensen added, quote, I know that I've talked with nursing staff and led to believe that there may have been COVID-19 diagnosis included on the death certificate document without having had a COVID-19 confirmed laboratory test, end quote. And I have talked to many nurses in that regard, as well as a variety of hospital personnel. I think it's important to take a step back as well. When the COVID pandemic broke out, a new ICD-10 code was created to identify COVID. An ICD-10 code is a, it's a diagnostic code that basically we all have to use. When I see a patient, I have to have two codes on every charge slip. One first I provided, perhaps it's an office call and it might be a 99213. But for every charge, we have to have 
a diagnostic code that would justify that charge. So you have both a procedural charge or a procedural code and a diagnostic code. Well, the World Health Organization created a code called U07.1, which is COVID-19. But they also created another code, U07.2, which is presumptive COVID. In America, the decision was made early on, in large part through the CDC, that if they received a U07.2 code, which is presumptive COVID-19, it would immediately default to U07.1, which was COVID. So it didn't matter really whether you had the U07.1 or the U07.2 code, it was going to be entered as a U07.1. That was problematic because if we had stayed with separating them, then we could have said, okay, if you're going to use U07.1, you have to have a positive PCR test. And if you don't have that and you're making a presumptive diagnosis based on maybe cough and fever or shortness of breath and cough or exposure to someone with COVID, then you use U07.2. We could have gone back and investigated those situations. We could have broken them apart and had this grouping and this grouping. But in America, the decision was made early on, there would be no U07.2. It would default to U07.1. So if a doctor put down presumptive COVID-19, it was virtually the same as putting down COVID-19. Wow. We go on to write in this article. For his truth-telling efforts, Dr. Jensen was investigated by the Minnesota Board of Medical Practices for spreading false information. On 28 July, Dr. Jensen announced the charges had been dismissed. So they went after you. They went after you for speaking the truth. And they couldn't come out with anything to take you down. And you mentioned, by the way, if I recall, and you correct me if I'm wrong, that when hospitals said that a, someone died from COVID-19, it made more money on it. And I think the number was like $17,000 or something. I don't know if it was you or someone else that said that, but when a patient died of COVID, it was profitable for the hospital. Is that correct? There's, no, it's not. So let me unpack okay. that a bit. So on the Ingram angle, Laura asked me about that. What it was, was it didn't have to do with a death certificate. It had to do with a discharge summary or a discharge diagnosis when the patient's discharged from the hospital. They did not need to pass away in order for this to happen. So what it was, was if I had a patient that had unspecified pneumonia, and they were discharged with that. They came into the hospital, perhaps through the emergency room, with a fever of 102, coughing up yellow-green uh, sputum, and feeling poorly. Their chest x-ray shows pneumonia, and they're diagnosed with pneumonia, and they're discharged. The standard Medicare payment for that in many areas, particularly in Minnesota, would be about $5,000. I checked with hospital administrators, and if instead of saying, unspecified pneumonia, if it was COVID-19 pneumonia, then the hospital would get something like $13,000 instead okay. of $5,000. Right. And, and Gerald, 
if during that hospitalization, that COVID-19 pneumonia patient was placed on a ventilator for a period of time, then the hospital would get approximately $39,000. Wow. So $5,000, $13,000, and $39,000. Well, now, to your point about the death certificates, hospitals don't get paid on death certificates, nor do physicians. So I think that was a little bit of a misunderstanding. Death certificates have their own set of oddities regarding COVID-19. But one of the things that happened there was if the COVID-19 diagnosis was on a death certificate as a part of the train of events that brought about the death, then FEMA, F-E-M-A, would provide up to $9,000 of support for the family for the burial and funeral costs. So I think people got that mixed up. Okay. And then there was another piece that people didn't realize. And that was, if you remember the initial CARES Act. Well, the CARES Act was out there in a quick hurry to try to help hospitals, clinics, and places that were getting inundated. Well, a chunk of money was distributed. The second chunk, the second tranche, of distributed dollars included dollars that were called high impact distribution dollars. And they were intended to go to hospitals and clinics and medical systems that really got hit hard by COVID-19. So in that situation, if between January 10th of 2020 and June 10th of 2020, during that five or six month period of time, if a hospital system hit 161 patient load or patient cases with COVID-19 on the discharge summary, they then got another chunk of money to the tune of somewhere between 50 and $77,000 per patient. Holy So in, in Minnesota, we had approximately 11 hospital systems that were able to hit that threshold mark. Now, the great majority of hospital systems in Minnesota did not hit that. But for those that did, now, you have to remember, Gerald, I'm a sitting senator, and I was vice chair of the Health and Human Services Committee. So I went to the Department of Health and said, I want to see what hospital systems in Minnesota participated in this second tranche of distributed dollars intended for high-impact dollars distributed to high-impact facilities and systems. And there were approximately 11. And I think the numbers went anywhere from like five or six million dollars of additional income to nice. up to 27 million. But this was a big deal. Yeah. You know, by the way, you called it a pandemic. The World Health Organization, WHO, called it a pandemic on March 11th, 2020. Now, remember the COVID war, and I say the word COVID war because that's what the politicians kept calling it. We're fighting a war. We're fight that's their language. I'm not making that up. And when you say you're going to war, that spreads fear and the people follow. It's been going on since the beginning of history. And going back, again, it started in on the Chinese Lunar New Year, the year of the rat. Uh, January 2020. So March, I looked it up. After more than 118,000 cases 
in 114 countries and you ready? 4,291 deaths. The World Health Organization declared COVID-19 a pandemic. Wait a minute. 4,291 deaths out of what? About 7 billion people? And you're calling it a pandemic? And then when you look at the numbers, and I watched a great interview that you did when the New York Times recently, in a buried article, admitted that the CDC overestimated the COVID deaths by some 30%, that if someone died of, say, a motorcycle accident or whatever, and they were tested positive for COVID, they put them in that they died of COVID. So when you look at the number of total people that died, if we just take that 30% off, and it may even be higher, we're looking at 99.93% of the people are still alive since COVID began in January 2020. So is that efficient enough to call it a pandemic? You make a, a very compelling point, Gerald. And I have to confess that I do not know the specifics of the operational requirements necessary to call something a pandemic. I'm going to believe that a pandemic generally will not be dependent upon the infectious fatality rate, but will be more based on number of cases, number of countries, things like that. We've had pandemics declared where the infectious fatality rate might be very, very low. And we've had other situations where the infectious fatality rate may be very, very high. We have three different words that oftentimes are used. We have the word outbreak, we have the word epidemic, and we have the word pandemic. And then we have another word that people are frequently confused about called endemic. An endemic is when a virus like COVID-19 becomes at a certain low level ubiquitously present throughout a population. It doesn't go away completely. It, it hangs around, but its virulence and pathogenicity has dropped enough that it's sort of like a rhinovirus that causes a cold or an influenza virus that causes the flu. But in terms of the criteria necessary for the World Health Organization to identify when a pandemic <laughs> is formally announced and when it's formally stopped, I don't know that. And I think that that was one of the problems for President Biden, where when he came out, I think last summer and said the pandemic is over, I think many people were concerned that that was premature because I don't think the president of the United States is allowed to arbitrarily determine when a worldwide pandemic is over. Again, but, you know, hardly anybody died or there were hardly any cases. And again, the facts, some 7 million people die, according to the data, of air pollution every year. That's why they wear those masks over there in, in lovely China where they burn coal like crazy. 
but we could that could go on year after year after year. That's fine. But COVID comes, then it's a crisis. But forget about the other one. And, you know, I want another quote here from you that we wrote in the Trends Journal. Dr. Jensen said, quote, hospital administrators might well want to see COVID-19 attached to a discharge summary or a death certificate. Why? Because if it's a straightforward garden variety pneumonia that a person is admitted to the hospital for, if they're Medicare, typically the diagnosis related group lump sum payment would be $5,000 is what you were talking about before. But if it's COVID-19 pneumonia, then it's $13,000. And if that COVID-19 pneumonia patient ends up on a ventilator, as you were saying, it goes up to $39,000. This is, the facts are right there. You said it, and you're the only one that has said it. Now, Gerald, and I think it's interesting, Gerald, I think it's interesting to know that when I said that, I believe it was USA Today went out and fact-checked it. And I believe they checked with both hospital administrators as well as some Medicare officials. And USA Today came out and said, on fact-checking it, those numbers are approximately correct. So I think it was interesting. I, I, I don't think anybody was fact-checking it to pat me on the back. I think they were fact-checking it to see okay. if they couldn't sort of tear me down. But I think that that's solid data. It's not precise data, but it's solid approximate data. And it justifies what I said, that a hospital administrator would want to potentially have that attached to the discharge summary. And I think it's worthwhile, Gerald, for people to understand one other thing. Hospitals get paid for most Medicare patients based on a DRG system, which is a diagnosis-related group. So if you have a pneumonia, you generally get a lump sum money cares in the hospital. So that's what I was speaking to, was in the world of diagnosis-related groups, hospitals want to try to elevate that. So oftentimes, if I'm discharging a patient with congestive heart failure from the hospital, frequently the hospital would also want me to put any other diagnoses also on the discharge summary that came up during the hospitalization. For instance, if the patient had a low sodium during the hospitalization and a high potassium, they would rather have me put congestive heart failure, low sodium, high potassium than just saying, congestive heart failure, because the hospital wants that severity of index to look more severe. They get paid more. Uh, you know, by the way, in the article in the Trends Journal, we wrote, indeed, after you said that uh, um, about it goes up to $39,000, we wrote, indeed, this is a fact that has been fact-checked even by USA Today which stated on 20 April 2020, quote, we rate the claim that hospitals get paid more if patients are listed as COVID-19 and on ventilators as true.
So we wrote about that as well in following what you were doing. And again, every time there was an article coming out about what you were saying, we were writing about it. And also the, um, we wrote an article in our 9th September article by the COVID hype, avoid the facts. We wrote last week, the CDC emphatically confirmed what the Trends Journal has been reporting since the lockdowns began in March. The vast majority of people killed by the virus are from elder care homes, elderly people suffering from pre-existing chronic conditions, and overall, some 94% of all Americans who died from COVID-19 had underlying health conditions. The top underlying medical conditions linked with COVID-19 deaths Influenza and pneumonia, respiratory failure, hypertensive disease, diabetes, vascular and unspecified dementia, cardiac arrest, heart failure, renal failure, intentional and unintentional injury, poisoning, and other adverse effects. As stated directly on the CDC's website, quote, for 6% of the deaths, COVID-19 was only was the only cause mentioned for deaths with conditions or causes in addition to COVID-19. On average, there were 2.6 additional conditions or causes per death, end quote. I believe what that article is saying, Gerald, is that if CDC had 100 random sampled death certificates that are attributing the death to COVID-19, that six of them would have standing alone the COVID-19 diagnosis. The other 94 would have attached associated comorbidities. Yeah. And the average would be 2.6. So if you rounded that up to three, there would probably be three additional diagnoses listed with it. In some of those situations, those comorbidities most likely in some of those situations had more to do with the patient's death than COVID-19. If, yeah. you're, if you're in end-stage renal failure or end-stage congestive heart failure, your prognosis for continued life may be a matter of weeks or months. And so if COVID-19 comes along and is the tipping point, then that death certificate should say that the immediate cause of death was COVID-19, which caused the death as a result of underlying congestive heart failure. The CDC makes it very clear. Physicians are obligated to identify the initiating event in a patient's train of events that led to their death. The initiating event is the underlying cause of death, which is the all-important diagnosis, because that's where we put that in the Federal Registrar of Diseases. If a person dies of stage four colon cancer, and they're on hospice with just a couple of days to live, and they're exposed to COVID-19, and on the last day of life, they develop a cough. Whether or not they're tested for COVID-19 wouldn't matter. The underlying cause of death would be colon cancer, and that's what goes into the registrar of death. So that would be a person that would be chalked up as a cancer death, not as a viral infectious COVID death. Let's go now. You correct me if I'm wrong on this. Well, I know that I'm right on this part. 
the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention said that of the 1 to 17-year-olds that were hospitalized, 61% with COVID were obese. And when you look at the deaths of 1 to 16-year-olds, uh, 1 to 17-year-olds, I believe the number in the course of over two years was less than 2,000. Is that correct? I don't have those numbers immediately available in my memory bank. I do know that the number of deaths in 1 to 17-year-olds was very small. I believe the likelihood of recovering from COVID in that group, if there were no underlying health conditions, was approximately 99.97% recovery. Yeah. And I believe in Sweden, they have a population of approximately 30 million people and they have 1.8 million children between one and 17. And during the first surge of disease in Sweden with schools continuing to be open, daycares open, and they did not have mask mandate, out of those 1.8 million kids, the number of people who died in that first wave of COVID was zero. Yep. Yep, we, we covered that as well in the Trends Journal. Dr. Jensen, I, I really want to thank you for, for doing this today and, uh, and for your being a real man and standing up for truth. And any suggestions that you might let us know about that we could pass on? Probably several. First off, if there's one thing I really learned during this pandemic, Gerald, that might have taken me by surprise is I would say this. The people who were most spot on and demonstrated in many situations brilliant insights did not have letters after their name. They weren't necessarily MDs or PhDs. They were people who were inquisitive, engaged, and did their homework. So that was one of the take-home conclusions for me. The second thing I would say is the modeling, which was done at the front end of the COVID pandemic, proved to be, in most situations, horrifically wrong and seemed to do nothing other than gin up the fear. The third thing is we had 20 years of data indicating that cotton and surgical masks would not prevent a person from being able to get COVID-19. And so for that data to be thrown out the window in place of sort of a fear-mongering tactic was remarkably disappointing. And the, the last thing I would point out is we utilized a testing system that literally through its design of cycling 40 to 45 times was going to give us a tremendous number of false positives. The New York Times wrote about this. The New York Times had an article where they talked about the fact that in one segment of the population that it identified as COVID-19, it was likely that over 80% of those were false positives. So I think whether you're looking at the modeling, whether you're looking at the masks, or whether you're looking at the testing, in each of those situations, we strayed so far off the mark that we cannot do this again. We have to be better. And I think people need to understand that if you look 
at an abusive relationship that's based on fear, the way you get that to really sink in and you get people to be frightened is you have to frighten them. You have to exaggerate things. You have to ostracize people who speak against the conventional narrative. You have to repeat what you say over and over again. You have to manipulate the media. You have to do all of these things. And you have to promise the people that if they'll just go along with you, that they'll create some sort of utopia where you don't have to worry. Yeah. These are the the that helped create an abusive that's exactly what happened in America no you're, you're, you're spot on and um, the politicians taking control I mean here, here by the way I used to hold up when you talked about the masks I'd hold up this box and then I'd read these masks <laughs> Do not eliminate exposure to the risk of any disease or infection. Right on the box. And everybody's wearing them. And as I used to say, and don't forget, when you masturbate, don't forget to sanitize your hands. And what was, what was the, uh, when everybody wouldn't touch anything and the chances of getting COVID from touching every, anything was like one in 10,000? How about stand six feet apart and everybody drawing circles because the, the wind blows exactly in six feet straight lines. It doesn't go around, doesn't go up and down. And when you go in a restaurant, make sure you wear that mask. But when you sit down, you can take it off because COVID knows when you're sitting down and eating and it's not going to bother you. Just like when you get on that airplane, you better wear that mask. But when you're eating and drinking and you got people sitting all around you, it's okay to take it off because COVID knows when you're eating and drinking, it's not going to bother you. What I'm saying is the, the imbecilic laws that they made up and what you were just saying about the, um, the abusiveness. And that's exactly what happened. I mean, there was no scientific fact that any of Oh, you go into a store and they had a plastic shield in front of the cashier. The wind doesn't go behind them, didn't go under it. It just stopped right at that. that I mean, this is like you're in the third grade. When, when I was a kid, they had us hiding on the desks in case an atom bomb went off. Gerald, I think that's what prompted me to go ahead and write a book during the pandemic. And the name of the book was We've Been Played exposing the triad of tyranny. And the triad of tyranny I reference is big pharma combining with big tech, combining with big government. Yep. And what I said in that book is, first off, patients have become pawns in the healthcare system. And it isn't just over the last three and a half years. This has been going on for some time. Yep. But I also said that COVID pandemic put this phenomenon on steroids. If people wanted to buy the book, they can go to drscottjensenbook.com, D-R-S-C-O-T-T-J-E-N-S-E-N-B-O-O-K.com. It's 20 bucks. You can go online and you can read it. But the bottom line is we saw things happening that defy logic. We <laughs> cannot afford to forget what happened. And we have to ask ourselves the question, was there a nefarious agenda in place 
that caused so many marginal decisions to be made. I'm convinced that at the end of the day, over the next few years, we are going to see a level of accountability indicating that people did lie, oh. that people did engage in disseminating disinformation. And I think we need to make a very clear distinction between disinformation, which is the deliberate spreading of falsehoods or half-truths in order to accomplish an agenda. And that's distinctly different from misinformation. Misinformation is simply incorrect information. If I tell you on Monday, it might be better for you not to eat eggs to lower your cholesterol. Well, if by Friday we've proven that to be wrong, and I tell you, oh, by the way, Gerald, you can eat eggs. It doesn't seem to be as important as we thought it was. I wasn't spreading disinformation. I was perhaps guilty of spreading misinformation because at the time I said it, that was the truth I held. Same thing with aspirin. How long did doctors tell patients, once you turn 40, get on a baby aspirin a day, and aspirin a day keeps the doctor away? Well, you know why we don't say that anymore? Because what we learned over time was we would cause more patients to bleed in their GI system from the aspirin than we would prevent them from having heart attacks. So there's a distinct difference between misinformation and disinformation. And ultimately, for those people who were guilty of deliberately disseminating half-truths and falsehoods for a nefarious agenda, accountability must be demanded. But there will be an awful lot of people identified as literally having bought into something that turned out to not be true and may well have been guilty of misinformation, and I could be guilty as well. And in those situations, we're going to have to take a certain level of reconciliation and forgiveness to the table. Because at the end of the day, we've got to move on beyond this. Yeah, no, I, uh, to me, you know, you said you were in the Senate. I was the assistant to the secretary of the New York State Senate at 26 years old. So I was on the other side as well. I know what it is. And you know what it is, too. You have a lot of incompetent people with big egos and bad attitudes that like, like, like being a little power hungry. And to me, that's all this was. It was a power-hungry freak show brought to you by that guy, Gavin Newsom, the first guy to close down, and that little daddy's boy we had over here, Andrew Cuomo. Again, you know, making up stuff. Oh, liquor stores could stay open. That's fine. They're essential. Yeah, because we get a lot of tax money from booze. You know, so again, you know, to me, it's just a freak show, and, and the freaks are in charge. And all they do is spread fear and, and, and terror so they can control the people more. The cover of our Trends Journal magazine, January 28th, 2020. Coronavirus, 106 dead in China, 1.4 billion still alive. Like, you know, what are you telling me this stuff for? So we came out right away and said that, you know, this, they're spreading a lot of fear here. And I'm, I'm going to mention something that nobody talks about. I used to be on Hong Kong TV throughout 2019. When the people in Hong Kong were taking to the streets. This is a city of 7.5 million people. Where over a million were taking to the streets 
in 2019 in protest of China taking over Hong Kong and the people losing their rights. They couldn't stop it. I'd be on a show for like 20 minutes. We take a break. I'd say, listen, Frank, so what's going on over there? Mr. Salenti, we're not going to stop. We're not going to let these Chinese take over. They're not going to rob us of our freedom like this. We won't stop protesting. Guess what? The COVID war broke out, closed down Yuan City, one Chinese city after another, closed down Hong Kong. You're not allowed to protest anymore. Get back in your house. Oh, and then we're going to pass the security law. It was finished. It was finished. Nobody ever talks about this. Nobody talks about the protests that were going on in China, in Hong Kong, before the COVID war broke out. So anyway, so when it happened, we said to ourselves, there's something else is going on over here. And then again, Italy was the first one to, to lock down. And you read, and again, I saw that great interview you did when uh, you read the article from the New York Times. And if my numbers are correct, the people that died in Italy, the average age was 81 years old. I don't remember that specific yeah. number, but I know that we did have a great deal of evidence that showed that in so many, many situations, the average age of death of the individual was an age whereby they had already exceeded their expected lifespan. Yeah. And they had pre-existing comorbidities. Yes. So thank you very much. And the name of your book again, because we're going to promote this and I'm going to read it and also do what I can to help spread the word of what you are spreading because you're one of the very, very few. Again, I'm reading from you from the Trends Journal. We were writing it long before. I mean, we just got in contact with you. So we've been writing about what you've been saying for years. And you were number one and very of the very few that, that spoke up. The name of your book and where people could get it? We've been plagued, exposing the triad of tyranny. And you can get it by going to Dr. Scott Jensen book dot com d r s c o t t j e n s e n b o o k dot com it's 20 bucks and nothing i got nothing. investigated gerald six different times by the minnesota board of medical practice yeah four months ago i was exonerated of everything completely seven years ago i was named the doctor of the year the minnesota yeah. family doctor of the year in minnesota out of thousands and thousands of physicians all of a sudden, I'm being investigated six different times. I right now am in the process of suing the Minnesota Board of Medical Practice Good as well you. as the Attorney General of Minnesota. So perhaps you and I can have another conversation in the future where we go into some detail as to why am I suing the Attorney General of the state and the Board of Medical Practice? Because then we can start talking about how important my First Amendment rights to free speech are and what it means when big government, big tech, and big pharma start colluding and start squashing us and censoring us. You got it. Thank you. And I will. And again, I'll do everything I can. As I said, you could, you know, I've just read you a couple of articles. We've been quoting you for years. And uh, you're a very brave man and, and the passion of the true American spirit. And so thank you so much for what you're doing. Thank you, Gerald. Have a good day. You too.